Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now the words I want to draw your attention to this Palm Sunday evening are the ones found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's page 980 in the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Now it is fitting that we examine Philippians this evening because we've both just about completed our series on Revelation and we've already finished the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 through 25. And one of the great principles we've learned in that study is that when we read in the Old Testament scriptures is how God is faithful to his promise to redeem a people for himself began with Abraham and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, culminating in the bride of Christ and the Lamb. We saw how Abraham, by faith in God's promise, left his country, his clan, and through his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we saw over time and trial his trust deepened, And over time, he ultimately desired to have more and more of God's promise. He wanted that heavenly country where God reigns. And we saw in Revelation the culmination of God's promise fulfilled, that he had prepared a people, the bride of the Lamb, prepared a place for her where her beauty and light and joy would shine out. So what we have here in our text this evening as we mark the entry of our Savior into Jerusalem is to look forward to see how this anticipates his ultimate triumph in his ascension, his exaltation, his sitting down at God's right hand because he is indeed the Lord of all. So we must not be tempted, as we might be, to stop at the historic event itself of our Savior entering Jerusalem. Because the gospel reveals Jesus to us, but it's in the epistles, like Philippians, the letters, in which Jesus is explained to us. So what we have in the letters, when they comment on this specific day on the gates of Jerusalem, is that we have what is a cosmic event that rings throughout the entire history of redemption. The promise, indeed, which began in Genesis 3.15. So Philippians 2 gives us the theology, as it were, of Palm Sunday, the opening of our Lord Jesus' coronation into glory when the Son of Man is lifted up both to the cross and then to heaven's glory. Because the doctrine, you see, leads to the practical application. Doctrine speaks to the struggles of our lives as believers. 
And why is that? Because the problems of our life are the most intractable. They can be ordinary or small, but we know that they are there. Why are they so intractable? Because indeed they go very deep within us, like the taproot of some weed wrapped around your heart. You need God's revealed indicatives, what he has done for you in Christ Jesus, and appropriating those teachings for yourself in order for change to truly happen. Because we need the full power of the gospel to shed light on these things, to root them out, and destroy them. And that's exactly why Paul writes to the Philippians the way he does. So we must ask ourselves, first of all, what was going on in the church at Philippi? What was the problem that Paul addresses with the great theology of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11? Well, it's a problem common to every one of us. It's an attitude problem. Now, what is an attitude? Well, an attitude is a disposition or a settled way of thinking that arises after we draw conclusions about ourselves in relation to others. And the problem of our attitudes is that they go right into the heart of our sinfulness. We draw conclusions about ourselves that are more or less false or exaggerated in some way, either too positive or too negatively have all probably known a person who for some reason or another has had a huge disconnect to the realities and facts around them and how they thought about themselves. What do we call that? Well, I guess we'd probably call that a bad attitude. And a bad attitude can have such a profound shaping in a person's life so destructive at times, particularly so in the fellowship of Christ's church. And this is the bad attitude of the Philippian believers. You see, it's on the opposite page of our reading today, verse 21. This is what it says. Paul writes about them that they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, verse 21. So Paul sets out these verses that our attitude is not to be drawn from conclusions that we make about ourselves apart from Jesus Christ. That's why he introduces this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is you in Christ Jesus. In other words, our attitude is to be grounded in Jesus Christ. And if our attitude is grounded in Jesus Christ, then it is to be grounded in the mindset and the lifeblood of God the Trinity himself. So let's examine Paul's thinking much more closely in a close reading this evening. Now notice how the pattern of Paul's thinking here is in two parts. He describes two attitudes here. 
The first is in verses 6 through 8. Do you see that there? Why don't you read, read along with me as I say it aloud? The first is the attitude of Jesus Christ to our need. That's key, you see. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Lord Jesus Christ is prepared to come down. Now notice Paul lists four stages here to what is called our Savior's humiliation. That's what he's on about here, the humiliation. The second person of the Godhead becoming flesh like us in every way sin accepted. Now the first is the reality of his deity and his glory. He was in the form of God. Second is the consideration of his divinity. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Third is the boundary of his humiliation. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And the fourth is the most important, the goal. The goal of all this in his death through his humiliation specifically on the cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, do you see what Paul is describing here, why he does this? It's because our Savior's attitude is to humble himself for a very specific reason, to get under your sinfulness, and my sinfulness, so that he might bear its weight for you on Calvary's tree. So our attitude to one another is to humble ourselves, to get under the burden of our fellow believers, to enable them to bear their burden. Now notice how Paul does this. It's not with a simple, well, Jesus did this, so you do that as well. What did Jesus do, like the old bracelet used to say? But rather, he lays out for us the gospel in all of its fullness, all these indicatives of what Jesus does for us. Because we understand here, don't we, that it's the power of the gospel the grace that overwhelms us, that brings the motivation in our hearts for change. If it wasn't there, it would just be a straightforward imperative, a command. Now, what about the second attitude? This is where it gets fascinating, you see, because the second attitude you might miss. It's the Father's attitude toward Jesus Christ. It's in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Do you see that there? You see it's that attitude that the Father has toward the Son. The attitude is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ so that he might be given the highest place in the universe. So notice how he does this. Look at verse 9 again. Therefore God, therefore God. Now, every time we see this in our study of the New Testament scriptures, what do I do? I always say, now we've got to stop at the therefore and ask, what is the therefore there for? Well, we know that Paul first sets an exposition of the gospel in what preceded it. And therefore, this is how you should live. You see it in verse 12. Here is the fullness of the gospel. This is our response to what Jesus has done for us, the logic of the gospel. But notice the difference. It's significant. What did you notice? It's not our response. It's God's response that follows. This, therefore, in verse 9, connects God's response to what Christ has done. So the logic here is that you connect what Christ has done for you and for me with what God has done for Christ. And what is God's concern? Is that the Lord Jesus Christ must be exalted. Now, why is that God's logic? What, why must this be his concern? Well, one reason is an obvious one. It's been in the course of our study for literally months and months. It is what God the Father promised to do. In Isaiah 52, he describes the suffering servant like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. In Luke 24, Jesus himself says this to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is the promise, and God is faithful to his promise. Now, the next reason is perhaps even more profound than the obvious one that has been occupying our study. There is a moral reason. In other words, it flows out of the integrity of God's heart. We know this from the Gospels. We sing in evensong, the Magnificat, don't we? Where Mary sings, he exalted those of humble estate. Jesus taught, he who humbles himself will be exalted. James wrote, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And then there are the words of Jesus in John's gospel, in John 10, 17, that can thrill the heart of any defeated believer. It's in the middle of describing himself as the good shepherd. This is what he says. For this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life for the sheep. My dear friend, for you and for me. Ponder this for a moment, if you will. 
it can actually leave you speechless. That even when our Heavenly Father had to turn away because our Savior had become sin for us, and the Father had to turn his back, God is aware of Jesus Christ's obedience to lay down his life for rebellious sinners like me and you. And the Father's heart is filled with admiration. He loves him all the more. What heart will stay unmoved then by the reality of what Christ did for you? It is this gospel understanding, you see, that is not just the faithfulness of God's promise external, but we come deeper and more deeply into the integrity of the Trinity itself. Our ability to humble ourselves, to get under our brother or sister in Christ's burden, is directly related to our understanding of God the Father, to Christ, who had thus humbled himself and exalted him above every other name. So we humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus, we find the grace to humble ourselves before each other. So when the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus looms large in your life, the simple result is this. Humility. Humility. This is the power of the gospel. So the question is simple. Do we agree with God's logic? Jesus Christ to be exalted above all, preeminent in all creation. Or do we agree with those who seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ? This is the pattern, you see, of Paul's thinking in our Savior's humiliation. So let's consider next the nature of our Lord's exaltation. The nature of the exaltation. We've talked about four stages of the humiliation, haven't we? Well, there's also the nature of Christ's exaltation. We see it here again, you see. Look at verse 9. First, he's given the highest place. God has highly exalted him. Second, he received the highest name and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what is this highest name? It is is Jesus as in verse 10. What does that mean? Well, we must remember when the Lord God took on the name Jesus, it was in his incarnation. But he did not relinquish his divinity. Now in his exaltation, the incarnated Jesus takes on the name Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. And that's significant, you see, because the Greek word Lord that our Savior takes on now for the first time is the Old Testament name for God, the covenant God. He's the covenant God and the creator of the cosmos. So we need to follow what's going on here very carefully. The Lord Jesus Christ does not relinquish his humanity. He displays his deity without abandoning his humanity. 
And how does Paul underline this? With the third stage of exaltation. He, he professes that the Lord Jesus is exalted to the highest authority. The name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess, and here it is, that Jesus Christ is Lord, God of all, creator and redeemer. And this is Paul quoting Isaiah 45, 23. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God, and the God in Isaiah is the same name that Paul uses here. Paul writes, in other words, the one who bears the name Lord is the one born in a stable and crucified in humiliation. But he is the one and no other who is now exalted. He is the one and no other so that every human being, every living creature will bend their knee down before him. Imagine that. Even those who despised him in our gospel narrative this evening, or those who despise him today, will be constrained by his glory to bow down before him. Imagine the animals, the creatures of the cosmos, gather before him and bow down. You, me, believers throughout history, will kneel before his exalted glory. And the fourth stage is here too, how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills his highest personal ambition to the glory of God the Father. This is his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, I want to just give a brief word on the importance of all this in our lives. Kneel down before Christ first. Then you can kneel down before one another. That is the principle. Kneel down before Christ first. Then you can kneel down before each other. Now, it's true, isn't it? The church is in troubled waters these days. But our focus should be on Christ. This is the base and pillar of our lives. But the problem is people in the church don't do this, do they? Rather, we follow the Philippians' lead in a bad attitude, considering our own interests and not Christ's interest. The trouble is, perhaps, we're not taking God seriously enough. What is the proof of that? Well, we're not taking his word seriously enough. You know, the danger always is, it's to somehow think I've mastered it all and to forget that we are still on a journey in sanctification becoming more and more like Jesus. So that what I learned in Sunday school at five, where the gospel simplicity was straightforward, 
the greatest minds of history still attempt to fathom. We can see its goal and end, but how we arrive there is the sum of our lives. So we make sure, don't we, that the teachings of Scripture, its great principles, become the principles of our lives, that the gospel permeates us in such a way that the danger, of course, is, is that we lose interest in finding out what that is. And that is a tragic thing. Maybe you call yourself a Christian. You take on the name. But do you really know what Christian truth is at your stage and time of life? Have you incorporated all the trials and the joys in such a way that they've translated to give your Savior glory? In other words, my dear friends, do we understand the logic of the gospel? We live in a time when so many think they understand the gospel, but they've showed distorted it that all they have is law, things they have to do, and by some grit they're going to power through and get it done. But in the end, that's some grand attitude of self-absorption, isn't it? Of self-promotion. It's always about what is good for the giver that motivates in law. But that is not what we find here. Paul's telling the Philippians, don't be busy with self-centered promotion. Why? Because Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. Then in verses 12 to 16, therefore... Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Why? Because the Father said, this is my beloved Son. Kneel before him. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.